Okay, this is part two of a series that I began a couple of days ago that I originally didn't intend to begin quite so soon. I had intended to cover it, you know, in, in coming weeks, but I've had such a demand from people uh, who are concerned about their local churches, about their own membership within their churches, because they feel that they are now outcasts within the community that they were supposed to be actively a part of and accepted within. And, uh, and it's men mainly because they want to delve into the political world that we have going on around us, and yet the church is telling them that as Christians they should not do that. And in part one, I covered this in, in regards to, yes, we are. We are supposed to be actively involved in this. In fact, there's proof throughout Old and New Testament that God has sent figures to both advise and rebuke the officials of their day in their positions. So yes, we are to get up and to fight either for or against the officials in the way that they are presenting themselves in relation to good versus evil. We are supposed to advise them on what is good versus what is evil and abhor them for reversing the two things. And it is a biblical standard. It is something that is a part of everything. And so I, I began with that talking about it. the numerous figures in Old and New Testament who have contributed to all of that advising and rebuking of those officials throughout biblical history. So I want to pick up now in part two. We're going to start right out with the Great Commission. And here's why I'm starting with the Great Commission. And you're going to go, well, wait a minute, the Great Commission, that sent people out to do evangelism. Yes, it did. But I'm going to tell you that the evangelism is a whole lot more than just John 3.16. And, and here's, here's where we are. Now. Let's, let's take a look at that passage, okay? Matthew 28, it's verses 19 and 20, not just 19. Some people just want to go with the first part of it. It's both verses, and it says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now, people love to cover the first part, and they say that's the commission, that you are to go, therefore, and teach all the nations. And you're to baptize them. But they're leaving out the second part. What are you teaching all the nations? Well, you're teaching them to observe all all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Well, all things whatsoever I have commanded you clearly means that there's more than just the John 3.16. It means everything that he taught as recorded in the four Gospels. And then you go on and look at John 14.26 and it says that there's a promise that the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then in John 16, uh, John 16, 13, it says that it will guide you, it will guide you into all the truth. But here's, here's, and, and I'm going to touch on this because I, I hear people, I've heard ministers throughout my lifetime, and, and it, it didn't frustrate me then, but it frustrates me now because like in a previous podcast that I'd created a long time ago talking about what the church didn't teach me. And by the church there, I meant also the ministry degrees, uh, what college ministry didn't teach, what seminary education didn't teach, so forth. All of that's a part of the church as far as I'm concerned. Um, but what 
what they failed to say was this very concept here that these figures, and, and I can't tell you how many people have told me, and, and I'm, I probably sound rattled just because I get so passionately wrapped up in this. It's frustrating to know that there were so many figures, there were so many figures that uh, that would say, well, you know, a lot of this was written decades after the events, and so it became very romantically composed. And uh, and they embellished on all of this. There's a lot of hyperbole in the Gospels and in the letters and things that because they were written years after the fact and and all that stuff. Now, if you want to say that about Old Testament, fine, because we do know there are centuries that went by between the uh, the early stages of the Old Testament history and when they were actually documented into a written form. We do know that. Okay, so I'm sure there was a great deal of romanticism that took place in that. But, but, when it comes to the New Testament writings, these were written in a very particular time frame. They were written by the first generation eyewitnesses of these events. That makes New Testament documentation very, very different in its authenticity as well as in its specific accounts. It makes it far more relevant and... and uh, I, don't, I use the word honest in its interpretations because they were written by the first century eyewitness figures. These were people who were there. Even if we're talking about decades going by, they were still there. But, and we can all talk about how, you know, you could recall an event, you know, a week that took place a week ago and already be ready to embellish it. You're absolutely right. And the older we get, the taller our tail becomes, the larger the fish is, and the more treacherous the event was that we survived. I get that. But in order to avoid that, <laughs> see, we're told in John 14, 26, that the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So it's not going to be you. It's not going to be your romantic interpretation of it. It's going to be the Holy Spirit recalling to you the events that took place, recalling all, all the things that I commanded during my time with you during those three years. But it's also going to recall what you experienced. So it will be in divinely inspired. So it doesn't matter whether it was two weeks or two decades later when something was being written down about events of that time. The Holy Spirit was creating the remembrance necessary for those details to be accurate. And so when ministers and theologians and professors try to tell you, or atheists try to tell you, well, it's all just dramatically written content, it was exaggerated, and they, you can't even put the miracle events in there because they were added years later, and it, it was all just meant to boost up this idea and make it larger than life. No. John 14, 26 reminds us, as well as John 16, 13, reminds you that the Holy Spirit was there to recall the truth and to give you the remembrance of the events that happened. These men and women were being led and, and were preaching with the Holy Spirit guiding and directing them, which was new. This was new. Old Testament, Holy Spirit came and went. New Testament, Christ leaves the Holy Spirit there to dwell within those people and to dwell within us. 
we have the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit is current and relevant, and the Holy Spirit will give you the remembrances of those things that God has told you and taught you and intended for you to make use of for his ministry. It is divine. It is inspired through the Holy Spirit. So that's how they were going to recall all of this. So it wasn't dramatized. It wasn't hyperbole. These events took place. For these individuals, their perspective is from the perspective that the Holy Spirit has given them remembrances of. And why would all of that be necessary? Because all of that was supposed to be taught throughout all the nations. That's the Great Commission. Now, regarding the question about Christian political activism, which is really what we're talking about here, should Christians be politically active or not? And there are churches, many churches, that are telling you, no, 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 you shouldn't have anything to do with that. We don't, we're not going to preach it from the pulpit. You shouldn't be talking about it in the church. However, the churches will listen to the political activism that is going on around them in the world, and they will shut your church down and make you have to have masks, and they will do all of those kind of things, and they will show fear of the world, and they will shun you for not taking part in the world's political agendas. And yet they tell you, hypocritically, they stand there and they tell you that you yourself, though, should not get involved in politics because that would not be Christian. And this is why people are so frustrated with their churches, and this is why they're, they're clamoring to me about this. And I understand it because I'm right there with them. My blood boils on all of this as well because it's like this is the very place. The church is the very place that should be the sanctuary for the fight against this. <laughs> and yet the church has given into it. And it's not new. It's something that's been going on for a long time. And I, again, there was a shift in the 1800s within the general framework of the church. But there's this new shift now of the politically correct has infiltrated the church at a very, very deep level within the last couple of decades. And you're seeing it now within the last few years, heavily. And you've seen it within the last year and a half to two years particularly, specifically. And this is why you're so frustrated. Now, again, for those of you that are tuning in for the first time and have never heard any of my podcasts before, I am not anti-Christian and I'm not anti-church. I am very much a Bible-believing, Scripture-following, believer, born-again believer in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I am a Christian. I'm just not a 21st century Christian as much as I possibly can avoid being, at least. Hence the reason why this is called first century press, not 21st century. I don't, I don't want 21st century Christianity. It's garbage. It's not Christianity at all. And so what you're seeing in your churches, your churches are manifesting this false religion. They're telling you you shouldn't be involved because they don't want you fighting back. The church is leading this. Yes, I will go that far. The church is leading this problem because where the church goes, so does morality. Let me say that again. Where the church goes, so does morality. Why do you think they're trying to destroy, destroy the church? Why are they trying? You think they're trying to remove it? 
because that's where morality is supposed to live. That's where it's developed. You develop it in the church, in the church community. If you destroy the church community, you no longer have a stable ground of morality, and you can tell people what, whatever you want to tell them about what is moral. But that is another reason why, yes, we are, as Christians, supposed to be actively advising and rebuking the officials around us because we are the moral compass by which they should be steering the ship that we are all on. If we're not guiding and directing the captain of the ship at his pulpit, and for those of you that don't know, the pulpit is just that. It is a sailing ship term behind which the captain steers the ship. If our ship, the church, is not being steered appropriately because it's not getting the proper advice on where it should go, meaning the moral ground in which it should be traveling, then morality becomes anything that society wants it to be. And worse, morality disappears. So where the church goes, so does our community, so does everything else. And so, yes, it is important, and hence the reason why Jesus said in the Great Commission, you are to go to all the nations, and you are to teach all the things that I've commanded you, which includes civil government conversation. We should be faithfully teaching the entire Bible, including what it says about civil government. And through that teaching, Christians learn how to influence governments for good. How to be their moral compass. And since these things are in the Bible, clearly it was important to God that they be a part of the advancement of his kingdom. So, when people ask the question, does Christian political activism do any spiritual good? I have to say on a, on a simple level, because God teaches it in Scripture, yes. It is something that pleases God. Now, let's go in and look at some more of the passages. You have John, 1 John 5.3 that says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. He doesn't command us to do bad things. He commands us to do good things, and we are to keep those commandments and the Great Commission commanded us to go and teach the nations all the things that he commanded us. Meaning to teach the full gospel, not just the last few pages. Not just the stuff that makes us feel good, but the things that make us uncomfortable. And the things that include the civil government around us. Now there are those that take 1 Timothy 2 they take this passage and they take it out of context as well, and they try to, to use this one as they've used others like First Peter and and so forth. And they try to go, well, you're not supposed to be a part of this. You're supposed to just uh, you're supposed to to pray for the kings, pray for your leadership, and, and then step back and and stay out of the rest of it because they misinterpret what First Timothy two says here. It says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men for kings, and for all that are in authority. But why? Here, here it is. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. See, our prayers are that all men, kings and all levels of authorities, 
are doing the job of protecting us from evil so that we can have a quiet and peaceable life with godliness and honesty. Again, if you've got leaders that are doing that because you're advising them, fantastic. If you have leaders that are not doing that, if officials that are not doing those things, then they need to be rebuked so that they will do those things or they need to be removed and replaced with someone else. Again, which is the voting process. At least here in the United States. But people want to take portions of this and take it out of context. The context here says there's a reason why you're supposed to do these things, but there's a role they're supposed to play as well. Now, again, forgiveness of sins is not the only message in the gospel. See? It's not the only thing that's there. 1 John 3, 8 says, He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now you got to follow through with me on this one. you got to hear where I'm going with this. The good news, the gospel, the evangelism core is supposed to lead to the changing of lives. The devil needs to be destroyed. The good news, the preaching of the good news, the teaching of the good news to all the nations is supposed to be there so that we can defeat that and we can change the lives of the people. When we change the lives, we change the families. When we change the families, we change the neighborhoods. When they change the neighborhoods, we change the schools. And here's where we are in that one, right? We're in the middle of that right now. We change the schools. And when we change the schools, we then change the businesses. When we change the businesses, we change societies. Now, what's interesting is people want to preach all of those things. They're all for all of that. They're amening all of that. But then when they get to this part... They're all for lives being changed, therefore families being changed, and therefore neighborhoods being changed, and then the schools being changed, and the businesses being changed, and the societies being changed. But they want you to stop there. They don't dare have you change the government. Now suddenly, as Christians, we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to contribute to that portion of it. It's okay. All the rest of it's okay. We're supposed to take part in all those other areas, but we, 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 we shouldn't, uh, we, we, shouldn't uh, we shouldn't touch the government portion of it. No, 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 no. We have nothing to do with that. The church shouldn't be involved in all of that. It's supposed to be involved in everything else leading, leading up to that position, but for some reason we're not supposed to affect the governing bodies that are supposed to be there to protect us and to serve us so that the societies, the businesses, the schools, the neighbors, the families, and the lives can be changed and stay changed for the good of the people. <laughs> okay? So again, when you ask the question, should the church be politically active The simple answer is yes. 
And I believe that it is, it is scripturally mandated as a part of all of this process. I do believe that. I believe that we are commissioned for that to be the case. Now, part of what is frustrating is again to hear people throwing all these other statements out there. And I want to I want to talk to the churches particularly the ministers at this point, any ministers who might hear this. And I I believe that I have a right to say this not only as as a child of God, but I have a right to say this as someone who is an ordained minister as well. You are doing your church a disservice if you're not preaching the entire Bible. You're doing your church a disservice if you're not talking about current events. And that means that you're not talking about the political environment in which your parishioners are living. You need to be preaching from that pulpit about what the Bible says about all the things that are going on around them because this is their lives that you have in your hands. You are supposed to be their shepherd. Shepherd that is supposed to protect and to serve the flock. The shepherd is not supposed to make it seem as if there aren't dangers out there and they don't exist. Or worse, that they have absolutely no say in the matter. Your church body elected you to represent them behind the pulpit. But you work for God. And God has commanded you to teach all that he commanded. If you're going to change the lives and change the families and change the neighborhoods and the schools and the businesses and the societies, then you need to also work at changing the governing officials. That's all a part of it. You don't stop there and pretend that it doesn't exist. And you certainly don't do it by telling the church members that they shouldn't do it and it's not Christ-like to do it while you stand there and tell them that we're going to turn you away if you haven't been vaccinated or you don't wear a mask. Which God are you going to serve? So I ask you, as ministers of God's Word, are you going to preach the Old Testament narratives about the good and the evil deeds of kings? Are you going to preach Romans 13? Okay, Romans 13, for those that don't remember it, I had it last time. I'm going to put it back up here. Are you going to teach that? You're going to teach, let every soul be subject unto the highest powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Are you going to stop there, or are you going to read the rest of it? It says, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? 
Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Meaning that if they are appointed by God, they are protecting us. They are a terror to the evil, not to the good works. But as a minister, are you preaching Romans 13, and are you indicating these people that are out there that are officials for you, they are terrors of good, not of evil. And therefore they should be rebuked. Are you preaching that? When you find figures that are doing what is obviously not the protection of the people, or are you contributing to the terror of the good rather than the terror of the evil? Are you preaching 1 Peter 2? And if you are, are you preaching both verses? Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be the king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. If those people are not doing good, they should not be praised. Are you preaching both of those verses or are you skipping around on some of that and just telling them that they should, they should adhere the words and statements and testimonies of the officials regardless of how they personally feel about it because that's the right thing to do. It's not what Scripture is saying. Scripture is saying there is a particular thing that should be done they are, the ones appointed by God are sent for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. And if the people that are in those positions are not doing that, they are clearly not being sent from, from God. And if you're preaching to your church that the church deserves what they are seeing in the political arena around them, that it's somehow punishment, and that you're claiming that Scripture says that that's what it is, you are leading them down a false path. Now, if you want to refer to Judges and the time period of what events that took place with the Israelites, go right ahead. But don't try to throw that context into today's world and claim that that's what it is because Christ clearly is not indicating that today. Christ didn't say that we're going to send judges to you. Christ didn't make those kind of comments. Christ said that you will be persecuted for doing the right thing. But don't go out there and preach some kind of a false doctrine claiming that God is putting these evil people in these positions to punish his people. There is no indication of that in today's world. If you want to preach it in the context of the history of the Israelites, do so because that's historical in that time period. But there is nothing scriptural that claims that today's problems in the world are brought on because the, the church is being punished or that the people deserve it. But what are you preaching? Again, are you preaching those Old, Old Testament narratives about the good and evil deeds of the kings? Were those leaders like Daniel and Isaiah, Jonah, 
and others rebuked those officials? Are you preaching about Daniel's influence of the government of Babylon? Or are you choosing to ignore that portion? Because you want to claim that we shouldn't have anything to do with politics, and yet Daniel clearly was influencing the government of Babylon. Are you preaching about Isaiah's prophecies to the other nations? <laughs> I mean, that's actually out-and-out out foreign policy. Are you preaching about that? If you are, then why aren't you preaching about the current events that are going on in other nations as well as here? Why are you not preaching about the influence of our local government or government around the world? Why are you not preaching about the narratives of good and evil deeds of the current leadership? Now, I'm going to ask this question. Does not the act of loving your neighbor, and this, this goes out not just to the ministers but to everyone, does not the act of loving your neighbor include seeking a better society for that neighbor? Right? Wouldn't that naturally involve seeking good laws to protect that neighbor? Wouldn't you want to be an advocate for those people that are your neighbors? That their lives are bettered? That evil is punished? And the good is praised? Wouldn't you want that for your neighbor? Isn't that what you're supposed to do? Isn't that a part of loving your neighbor? But then also, isn't that a part of you loving your neighbor as yourself? But see, they're trying to destroy that too. They're trying to tell you that you yourself are an evil human being and that you're not worthy of having good things right? Especially if you're white, you, you just automatically have supremacy over things. You have white privilege. And so therefore you should just hate yourself. Do they want you to believe that? Because therefore you will love your neighbor as you love yourself. And if you don't love yourself, you won't love your neighbor. You won't even know who your neighbor is. You won't care who your neighbor is. But doesn't loving your neighbor also include protecting preborn children? Is that isn't that your neighbor? How about protecting marriages and families? Aren't those your neighbors? How about our youth from the corrupt and immoral influences going on around them? Aren't they your neighbors? Including those that are infiltrating and infecting our classrooms with weak and immoral educational concepts? Aren't they your neighbors? Aren't they all a part of this? Are you preaching Genesis 9-5? And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require, and at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Now why do I throw this out there? Are you preaching about this? Because this is literally the concept that led to the eye for an eye. And so for those of you that are standing behind your pulpits, be they organized churches or just from your home couch, and you're telling people that you have a problem with God or that you have a problem with uh, corporal punishment or you have a problem with the imprisonment of people, or you have a problem with the death penalty. 
Now, there are some that would say, well, you know, you stood right there and you talked about how, you know, you, you need to make the ministers need to make sure that they're talking about the right context and that uh, the judges were in context of the Israelites. And then here you are throwing a, an old, pas- old Testament passage up. At, well, this Old Testament passage predates the history of Israel. This is a human law. Not a Jewish law. This is God, the creator of all life, saying that there will be blood for blood. He's not calling it immoral, he's saying it's justice. And yet I hear people all the time claim that it's so unchristian to believe that we should punish people no it's it's biblical now are we talking here about the types of concepts that that were led by some nations both in biblical scripture as well as in other faiths where you cut the hand off of somebody for i'm not talking about the specifics of how that judgment takes place and, and i don't adhere to all of that but the Bible is not specifically telling you today to do that. That God very made it very clear that if man sheds blood, his blood shall be shed. By man. Earthly punishment. That there are consequences. But are you preaching that from your pulpits anymore? Probably not. Most people don't anymore. They don't bother. Galatians 6.10 says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. See, loving our neighbor is included in this. Praising the good, lifting up the good, and abhorring and punishing the evildoer. Let us do good unto all men, especially unto them that are of the household of faith. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are designed by God, created in Christ to do good works. We are there to act upon others with a loving, neighborly attendance. And that includes getting wrapped up in those things that politics have chosen to include as their babies, but they're not. Pre-birth abortion isn't a political event. It's become political, but it's not a political event. It is a morality issue. The sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of families is a moral contract, a godly contract. It's not a political contract. But they've made it that, and the church has adhered to that and helped promote it. See, the church keeps expecting the politicians to solve their problems. But the church claims it doesn't want to get involved 
in having the right people in those positions to do that solving of those problems. But again, if all of these good acts are supposed to be there and everybody agrees that these things are, are good things that we should be a part of and that we should be contributing to, why do we stop then? Why do we stop and say, but this has nothing to do with, uh, you know, with with uh, the political world. We 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 can't touch the government. We, we, no, no. Well, we shouldn't have anything to do with that. Doesn't doing good include being good influencers on law and government? Being a good influence on the political process. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We're commanded to do this. All of it. Remember Matthew 5, 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. They need to see where you stand in your life, not just in your church life. They need to see where you stand in your life throughout all community. All of it. And my question is, if the churches should teach how to do good works in hospitals and schools and businesses and neighbors and neighborhoods, why not in governments? When 2 Corinthians 5.17, you know, it's true that evil is restrained through changed hearts. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You do become renewed. And therefore, evil does get restrained through that process. But that's only for everyone who has trusted in Christ as their Savior. It is not the only way, however, to restrain evil. Some evil can only be restrained by the power of civil government. And and you would ask, why in the world would you say that? Well, I say that because not all hearts are going to be changed. We know that. Christ said that you will always have the poor with you. He didn't always mean poor financially. He meant the poor. There are people that are poor in spirit, poor in mind, poor in health, poor in morals. You will always have those figures with you. Not everyone's life is going to be changed like 2 Corinthians 5 says. And because of that, we will therefore continue to have drunk drivers and thieves and murderers and molesters and other people of immoral character. (laughs) And because we're going to continue to have these people, because of this truth, we know that we will continue to need laws and punishment. We will need that. We need our moral compasses in this world because we will continue to have those people that will not follow the rules of humanity. I don't mean rules of a nation or of a city as much as 
just human nature. I mean, it is within our nature to know. And I, I spoke of this in the first part. You don't necessarily need to have the Ten Commandments put in front of you and, and told, you know, if, you are, if you are a believer, this is what you follow. No, human interaction, normal human interaction, tells you that you shouldn't murder people, that you shouldn't steal property from other people, that you shouldn't think lustful thoughts toward coveting someone else's spouse. These are simple concepts that don't have a particular faith behind them. They don't need a particular religion to be based on. They're general moral character issues. But you will always have people that will still commit murder, they will still steal things, they will still covet other people's spouses, and you'll have them within your church that will do these things. Because they're lost. They're sinful. They're sick. And probably a dozen other things that they are as to why that they do what they do. And because of that, you will continue to need rules and guidelines. You will continue to need laws. Till the last immoral person is gone from this world, you will continue to need laws, guidelines, governances, and punishments. I mean, even Revelation tells us that even during, even during that, that reign of Christ, once he's back, there will still be people who will not choose him. <laughs> even when Satan is chained and held back during a period, there will still be people who will not willingly come and submit themselves to the will of Christ. Even in that time period, when they don't have Satan influencing them, there will still be people who will not do the moral thing, will not do the right thing, who still won't see good. So there will, there will always be a need for laws and punishment, which means there's always a need for a moral compass, because we need to be reminded of what is good versus what is evil so that we don't mistake evil for good and good for evil. And I think we're already there. I think that's exactly where we are. I think a, a, a portion of the community, I don't think it's nearly as large as they want you to believe that it is, but there's a portion of the world that is convinced of the opposite. They look at evil and they say that it's good, and they look at good and they say it's evil. They're frightened by good things, and they love, they lust after the bad things. And because we have those people here, we will continue to need rules and guidelines. And because we need to continue to have that, we need to continue to have civil government. And in order for that civil government to work, we've got to have people that are being advised and or rebuked by those that have a moral compass that is based off of God. It's that simple. Now, these are not new concepts, by the way. And Christianity... There are people that would argue, well, you know, Christianity is not the only answer to everything. Well, okay. I, I disagree with that. I do. I disagree. But let me just tell you what kind of influences Christianity has had throughout history since its inception with the walking here on, the, on earth in the flesh by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I do know that in Rome alone, around 374 A.D., Due to the Christian influencers, there was an outlawing of infanticide. 
which is interesting. They had a higher moral compass toward the killing of babies then than I think our current government has. But in Rome, in 374, around that time period, as early as that period, they outlawed infanticide. They outlawed child abandonment. They outlawed abortion. Isn't that interesting? This was Rome in the 300s. Christian influence helped combat against battles to the death, the facial branding of criminals, human sacrifices, pedophilia, polygamy, and forms of human slavery throughout history. All prohibited because of Christian influence. And within our own nation, within the United States, Christian morality heavily, heavily influenced the founding fathers and the documents that they based our existence on. Particularly the Declaration of Independence and our United States Constitution. Now, current history wants you to believe these men were just amoral. But if you read, truly read their real histories, you will find that that is not the case. Now, were they all truly upstanding Christian men? No. But even they wrote into these documents and they declared the need for us to preach, the need for us to pray, the need for us to assemble, and they wrote into our founding documents Christian tenets that were essential to our existence because they knew that that is where morality lives. Now, there are still those that are arguing that you know the growing persecution of Christian is something that we Christians is something that we can't do we can't fix we can't reverse the, the, it's already been prophesied in in Matthew's 24 and 25 and in 2 Timothy 3 and you know in all these different places and especially in Revelation I mean it's very clear the persecution is going to become bad it's going to become extreme it's going to be the the darkest age of humanity and all of that we understand all of that it's it's there and because of that, they believe that any fighting against it is just futile. Now, why should we bother to even attempt it? Why would she even bother to be involved in that? And I've heard ministers preach that from the pulpit, which doesn't make any sense to me. Why in the world are you preaching to people on a weekly basis trying to help their lives if you're just going to tell them that it's all futile? Now, I've said this before. I said it in the last uh, podcast. I'm, I'm going to repeat it in here. The end is the end. There will be that end. But that end does not tell us when that end occurs. But we have been told timeless times that we are to continue doing what we are doing until the day in which we can no longer do it. Despite what we've seen and we've heard and things. And again, like I said, I know that, you know, I know that Matthew. Matthew 24, 36 says, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but only, but my Father only. Okay? What that tells me is we've got to keep fighting and keep doing what we have been commanded to do already to do 
until that day when the Father allows to happen that last day and hour. Matthew twenty five thirteen. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. We don't know when it's going to happen. And as a result of that, we've got to continue to labor as we have been commanded to do on all subjects, in all areas, and everything that he commanded us to do throughout all the nations until that day and hour. That simple. 2 Timothy 3, 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of passion of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, of such turn away. Yes, you can look at this and say, well, this is this today's world. This is the life that we're living in. I can't disagree with it. Unfortunately, there are generations and there are centuries of people that could read these scriptures and say the same thing. And although I do believe that we are living in those end times, I do believe that. I have to admit within myself, again, that there were people a century ago, two centuries ago, three centuries ago, five, ten centuries ago, that were looking at all this going... It's got to be happening. It's got to be now. We're living in this. This is how people are. This is what my neighbors are like. This is what I've seen. But if they have given up, and if they had stopped fighting the fight, if they had told themselves that there was nothing they could do about things, we wouldn't be here today. It's really that simple. We wouldn't be here today. I'm going to cut this one a little bit short. We're going to pick up a part three um, probably over the next day or two. But I wanted to end it there because I want to remind you that, yes, we there is a time when all of these things are going to be really bad, and we're living in some of that right now. But that's even more reason why we should continue to fight the fight, why we should continue to be a part of things, and why if your church is telling you that you should not have a voice in any of this and the church is trying to silence its own voice regarding any of this stuff, you should mark and avoid that church. And if you're out there asking the question, the simple question, and, and unfortunately the sad but but kind of depressing question, well, where do I go then? If my church has abandoned me, if I'm an outcast in my church, where do I go? What do I do? I'll, I'll give you the answer that I've I've had to come to. There are a handful of churches out there that I have seen uh, within the, the driving range of my own life. Um, that have been very Bible-believing churches. But I have found small group, independent Bible studies, going to the Lord one-on-one has served so much better for me personally within the last couple of years than the larger church. 
and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the comparison of the church with our political environment. Uh, the larger a church is, the more convoluted, con, uh, convoluted it becomes, the more immoral it becomes. And, you know, if our founding figures, uh, figures like Benjamin Rush and, and Benjamin Franklin, both kind of... Uh, Jeffrey Rush. I mean, yeah, Benj- yeah, Benjamin Rush. Sorry, Jeffrey Rush was an actor. Uh, Benjamin Rush and, and and Franklin and Figures and Jefferson and some of those, they, they did have conversations with each other about you know these states don't need to be large states because the larger they are, the more immoral uh, and unruly they become. And uh, the cities are the same thing. The larger the city, the more unruly the city becomes. And there is truth to that. The larger the metroplex, uh, the harder it is to contain from a moral perspective, let alone anything else. And I believe the church is the same thing. I think the larger the church grows, an individual church grows, the weaker it becomes in its ability to fight the world. So my first answer to those of you that are they're saying that my church is, treats me as an outcast, well, you need to seek a smaller church. And if the smaller church isn't answering that question either, maybe you need to be speaking, uh, seeking a smaller group of friends that are like-minded and like-spirited. Um and if you don't have either of those, you need to do some deep praying because maybe you're one of the ones being led to create that community. Maybe, just maybe, you're one of the ones that's supposed to be leading one of these small groups. Maybe you've spent too much time at this point and you didn't even know it, but you've spent too much time being someone who sits and listens to others rather than being someone who is leading the Bible study. Oh, but I've never done, never done that before. That may be exactly the best credential that you could have. It's possible. As long as you're not trying to teach just yourself, you're trying to go into the Word. If, as long as what you're doing is focusing on the Word. And please, I, I beg of you, um, be extremely careful with what you use as your Bible study materials. If it's not primarily your actual Bible, if it's primarily some packet, that has been created and written by a handful of people, um, I warn you that in today's world, regardless of what Christian organization it's coming from, you need to kind of mark and, and avoid a lot of them because the church is deeply, deeply rooted in the evil that is of this present age. And that's because that's where morality lives. Its its last breath is taken in the sanctuary of a church. And they're trying their best to suffocate, to smoke out the churches so that no morality is left and they can re, remap and restructure what morality is or do away with it completely. And that includes the, again... The larger the organization, the more likely they are to have an immoral embrace. And that goes within the publishing companies for your your Bible materials. It goes within your churches and in the outreach that they have. Find yourself a small group. If it's small church, small group, neighborhood group, things of that nature. A few people maybe that you can meet with online individually. Um that's where we need to return. That's where the church was founded. That's where it came from in the first place, but I think that's where we need to return. And uh, it starts with you doing an individual Bible study, literally just in the Bible, not the footnotes, in the actual Scripture between you and the Lord. 
letting the Holy Spirit guide and direct. Read a little bit, listen, ask God, what does this mean? And sit and listen. It's going to take some quiet, meditative time. And by meditation, I don't mean on a mat with positions. I'm talking about a quiet conversation with God where you sit and you ask questions, but then you shut up and you listen to the Lord. You read a passage and you let the Lord talk to you. And you may not be used to doing that. You need to become used to doing that. Because I can tell you right now, the future is not large churches. The future isn't even church buildings. The future is small groups. And eventually the future, the future at the very end, in those most desperate of end times, the future is going to be you alone with God. And you may not see that pleasant now because it seems isolating to you. It will become, if you cannot make it, the most beautiful, most precious moment of your day. You won't make it in the end. And I don't say that to defeat you. I say that to remind you that if right now the thought of being alone with your Bible is frightening to you, you need to fix that. (laughs) You need to fix that if you fix nothing else in your life. You need to fix that right there because that is your actual lifeblood. Not social media, not everything else, not what I say or do. It's that relationship. If your church, if you feel that your church has abandoned you, maybe it's because you're not supposed to be a part of that. You're supposed to be in communion with God and not that church. In fact, I can almost guarantee that's the case from, for 99% of you that will hear this. The problem isn't you. The problem is your church. We'll pick up with this. I've got a whole lot more, and I knew I wouldn't get through all of it. Um, I got through a whole lot more than I thought I would within an hour. Uh, really twice as much of my notes as I did the first period. Um, but we'll we'll finish this off in a, in, a, in a third podcast within the next day or so. Until then, know that I am praying for you. I may not know you by name, but I'm praying for you that you are hearing this, that you are seeking God's counsel, and that you're passing this information on to others. And uh, until next time, God bless.